your money, your taxes, your truck, and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is letstruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking, and today is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and Ethan and John with me from Pittsburgh Power. We'll take your calls and answer your questions about everything maintenance. Engines, performance, fuel mileage, modifications, upgrades, troubleshooting, emissions, new technology, you name it. We'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and ask the question. We're going to get to those calls in just a little bit. Bruce, welcome back. Always our pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Let's bring in Ethan and John. Hey, guys, welcome. Hey, Kevin. Great to be here. As always, good to be here, Kevin. All right. So before we see what you guys have this week, I had a call last night on the show, and the question seemed like an obvious one, but I hadn't heard it before, and I just wasn't sure. So the scenario was a guy's out looking to buy a used truck, and he was test driving uh, 2013. It was a T680 with a pack car uh, MX engine in it. It had been sitting for about four months, the dealer said, and he said it was just really putting out a lot of white smoke. Um, And it, you know, cleared up a little bit after he drove it a little while, but he was still getting a lot more than what he thought. The dealer claims that the DPF was cleaned as part of the service when they took the truck in, but the dealer said these all do that if they sit around. And... That just didn't seem logical to me. If you clean the DPF and it's clean, what happens after sitting for four months? So I recommended that he pull an ECM report and see the regen history on this truck. But you guys have any thoughts on that? I don't believe they all do that after sitting. That doesn't uh, make make much sense to me. There's not a whole lot that that can go wrong unless... uh, Go ahead. Are you there? Okay, we still here? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, yeah, that's, so there's nothing, uh, especially on a modern engine, that would, would uh, lend any credence to that at all. That's kind yeah, of what I thought. Right. Yeah, um, that's kind of what I thought. I told him, you know, with all the trucks available, if you have something questionable like this, especially with the DPF issue, because the trucks that have those seem to be the real problems. I told him I, if it were me, I'd skip this truck, find something else. But if he were still interested, I would, at the very least, I would pull the ECM report and see what the regen history is. He can look at that, and if there was a... To me, it sounds like it might have a problem after sitting the uh, the death doser might be hanging open or something like that. Yeah, it's not burning properly. Okay. Got it. All right. Well, you know when he first the DPF said when he first asked the question, it seemed like it should be obvious, but I had never thought about it. But again, logically, it just didn't make sense. The DPF is clean. What what would it matter if it sat there for two years? It doesn't. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's simple physics. Yeah. Okay. 
All right, so uh, anything new and exciting over at Pittsburgh Power this week? Well, we had an interesting... uh, we had an interesting conference call today from Chrysler Corporation. They're running a lot of ISX engines on compressed natural gas. And whenever you run a compressed natural gas engine, you can't do excessive idling. And they do a lot of intra-plant deliveries, just-in-time delivery. So they do 38% idling. And the oil is building up to what looks like cement on top of the piston, and it'll mushroom over and wipe out the cylinder walls in less than 100,000 miles. So they called us, and uh, they had their pirates to be on the phone with us trying to work out uh, a solution, but we don't, uh, we don't have one at this time, but we haven't given up on that. Plus, uh, we have a lot of people asking about the 253 and 239 gear ratio. So uh, John and I looked at some of the speeds versus RPM, and this will be with low-profile tires. Low-pro, 22.5. With a 253 at 1,400, you're at 65.88. So let's say uh, 66 mile per hour at 1,400. And at 1,500, you're at 70 mile per hour. That's with a 253. Now, we can also go down to a 239, which is at 1,400, you'll be at 70. And at 1,500, you'll be at 75. But the pumpkin that it takes to go into differential housing, like the DS402 and the DS404s will not work, you have to buy the new D40-155. So there's going to be a little extra expense there. Then the other thing to think about, I know everyone thinks they can go faster on lower RPM and save fuel, but it takes more turbo boost. And the reason I'm bringing this up is as I travel through Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah, I see nobody driving slow with those high speed limits out there. Especially in Wyoming, everybody's going 75 and 80. But it takes a lot of power to go that speed. And I don't want people to think that if they put the 253s or 239s in and the fact that they're running low RPM, that they're going to get their great fuel mileage and be able to go 75 and 80 miles per hour. You still have to look at how many pounds of turbo boost it's taking to maintain that speed. You know, Bruce, let me let me add a couple things. One, um, I have a solution for uh, Chrysler and their natural gas problems. What's that? <laughs> Stop running diesels on natural gas. Who the... I, I, you know, back in... Back in 2014 or whatever year it was, I called it the year of the natural gas because that's all anybody was talking about. Must have been a year when fuel was really high. I can't remember what year it was. And fuel was over $4 a gallon. Natural gas prices were down somewhat. And everybody was talking about natural gas all year. And I kept saying, this is a stupid idea. 
this is complicated. We got to build out a whole new infrastructure. We had the fight between LNG and or CNG, and that would cause a mess if you bought into the wrong technology. And the savings was minimal, and the savings depended on f- diesel fuel staying that high and natural gas staying lower. And the other problem was. Natural gas isn't taxed for fuel tax the way diesel was. But if it becomes popular enough, you know the government's going to step in and tax it the same way. That would even make that, that savings even smaller. The, the other big issue was I did some research on a company that was running natural gas trucks, quite a few of them. Their maintenance costs were double the average. Double what it costs to run it. So that more than wiped out all of the savings in the fuel. And as soon as diesel went back down, there was no more savings. So now we're looking at, you know, electric trucks possibly being the future. And when you look at the two technologies, electric has natural gas beat up and down. And and honestly, so does diesel. I, I just don't see why anybody's even looking at natural gas vehicles. Huge, huge tax breaks and incentives. They said it's almost free. Ah, that's it. (laughs) The the guy who spec'd this out with the Chrysler folks, even with the amount of money they spent on the infrastructure and the fueling station, uh, with the tax breaks and the incentives for buying them, it's more than paid for the maintenance. So So it it was a simple business decision. So now I hate them even more because now they're wasting my money. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I don't mind if they waste their own money John, on a stupid idea. What did they spend on the infrastructure to put in their... They said. $10 million. $10 million. Oh, the oh. largest fuel station in the Midwest. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I, For which I'm sure they got some sort of, uh, some sort of tax statement as well. Well, but they yeah. must have, because nobody in their right mind would spend $10 million on an infrastructure for a lousy idea unless there was some incentive. I, oh, now, now, Kevin, keep in mind, the person might have wanted to be the uh, corporate leader to go green. But it's not green. That's the other no, problem. It's not really that green of a technology. And, uh, unbelievable. Uh, how much diesel fuel would $10 million buy? Let's uh, let me get to a break. We'll come right back. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Stick around. We'll be right back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour.
Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and Ethan and John with me from Pittsburgh Power. We're going to get to your calls in just a little bit. Well, the whole natural gas thing, I think, is kind of a fiasco, especially with um, some of the other new technologies we're seeing, the hydrogen electric, the electric. Volvo just announced an all-electric truck. Um, I just don't see any future in natural gas when you look at all the problems and Without the tax, there's no savings whatsoever. So I think this is one of those lousy cases where government incentives created a, a huge problem instead of any kind of a solution. But to move on to the the rear end gears, Bruce, right now, if somebody had to replace the pumpkin to get down to those gear ratios, um, what would the cost be to replace gears? You know, I, I I didn't get a price on the D40-155 pumpkin, but I'll have that for the next week's show. Okay. So let, let's just say, I mean, I used to quote, if you were just going to change out gear sets, you were probably looking at about four grand. Is that right? Yeah, it's a little, well, if you buy the rebuilt pumpkins, you're in the, in the mid-sixes now. Okay. So even more. It, it, about 3500 bucks a piece from what I hear now. Okay. Yeah. So good. Close to seven. I need to update that number, then I'll start saying 6500 Let's think about that. At best, John, it, it, you know, you do a lot of work with this and gear ratios and fuel mileage, and I've done it for years. Bruce, you have too. And, and we've been recommending direct drive gears for a long time. But honestly, if if we take worst case scenario, somebody's really geared completely wrong, we might pick up three or four tenths with a gear change. Most trucks today are close enough that we're probably only going to pick up about two or three tenths for six or seven thousand dollars. I mean, if and I tell people all the time, look, before you even think about changing those gears. Pull into Pittsburgh Power and hand them $7,000 and see what they can do on fuel economy. For that kind of money on most trucks, you guys could probably improve a a mile per gallon or more. That is correct. Now, back to to the gear ratio, the one of other advantages, you do gain the horsepower. You are in your, your best pulling gear. The transmission and the engine are much quieter running indirect. But it is a considerable expense now, especially if you want to run the higher speeds. Well, and that's the other thing. If you take somebody that's running 65 because of their gears, then they spend six or $7,000 to go to a higher ratio so they can run 75. They're not going to gain fuel economy. They're going to lose it. We could never make up that extra ten. Yeah, exactly. We could never make up that extra ten miles per hour, no matter how we could get the perfect gear. Never going to matter. And and you know, I love direct drive gears. I think every truck should be spec that way. But my my point now is either buy the truck that way, or you know, if you put together a list of fuel mileage improvements. Changing out the gear is going to be way down at the bottom. There's just not a, a good return on investment on that. Now, if a gear breaks or, or you have oh, to replace the other thing. it, then clearly that would be the time to do it. Right. 
Yeah. Oh, so me, oh, a change like the gears is when, you, when you're at the sharp end already. You know, I've always had to prioritize modifications and money I spent for my racing customers. You know, things that make it reliable, things that just make it really, you know, that just, just the, the, the biggest changes for the least amount of money all the time. And then you go to, you know, when you get to the sharp end, when you're looking for that last couple of tenths, if you're knocking on the door 10 miles per gallon or 9 miles per gallon or whatever your goal was, that's when you go to things like, you know, getting the thing into direct, direct drive and putting the right gear in for that. Yeah. Then it all of a sudden yeah. becomes worth it, you know, whether you get that money or not. But if, you know, if it helps you to achieve your goal, it's another story. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have some people that the, the goal is fuel mileage, not cost. It's just a number. They they want to get to a certain number, right. and they, and and then other people. Every dollar counts. And I, lately, I've been getting a lot right. of calls about people who want to change gears, and I'll ask them, "What other modifications have you done?" Sometimes the answer is none. Well, that's when when that money could be so much better spent. And and if you work through this and you get all the other modifications done, and and gears still an option then that may not be a bad time to do it but um, certainly not you know up front everybody seems to to be really really focused on rpm again and it 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 makes a difference there's no question i love running a truck indirect but you know if money is the issue it's way down the list especially if we're looking at six or seven thousand now Okay. All right. What do you say we get some phone calls? All right. We're ready. All right. Let's do it. Let's head off to Iowa to get started. Dan, welcome to the program. Hey, Sensei. How are you? <laughs> What's on your mind today? Hey, uh, well, um, first off, thank you for everything you do. Uh, I've been listening to you since I started driving, and uh, you've been a wealth of knowledge, and everybody that asks me how I did it, I tell them, just go to your website. Everything's there. Uh, that's all you need to know. Um, I have a 2013 Freightliner Cascadia with a DD13, 336 rears running on 22.5s, 10-speed uh, manual at 60 miles an hour. I'm at about 12, uh, 1280 RPM. Uh, got a little lower fuel economy than I'm, what I was hoping for. Uh, actually talked to John yesterday about this, and I think we got a little bit of a game plan. But I have one additional issue now, and uh, I, I figured I'd present it to the group anyway to, to see uh, what you guys thought about it. Are you still there? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, okay, I'm sorry. I'm getting a lot of feedback, uh, a lot of... So the, the, the additional issue I'm having now uh, on top of a little bit lower fuel economy is, a, and it just happened to me today, um, and I thought I had the problem fixed. I came to a stop at a red light, and all of a sudden where the right corner of the hood meets the windshield, there's white smoke with a burnt diesel smell coming up lasts for about 20 seconds, then totally dissipates. I open the hood, and there's no um, nothing wet, nothing looks like it's been dripping anywhere, nothing looks like it's leaking. 
I did have the doser valve replaced last month uh, because uh, it, it, the, the shop said that uh, that's probably what was caused this issue because there was a half-atomizing, half-dripping issue. The valve wasn't opening and closing correctly. So um, got that switched up, but now it's still doing the same thing. It doesn't happen every time I stop, but it happens maybe, um, you know, once a week to a stop. So I think that's indicating that I'm coming to, when, when, when that happens, um, I'm somewhere in the regen cycle, but something's not quite right. Well, I'll address hey, the, uh, the fuel yeah. mileage real quick. Um, you know, it's interesting. We were just talking about changing gear ratios or not. Uh, you probably got one of the worst combinations on the driveline I've seen, a 10-speed with 336s. The 336 is too low to, you know, for that 10-speed to get decent fuel economy and overdrive. But when you drop to ninth, then it's the, the – actually, the gear ratio is too high. When you drop to ninth, it's too low. There's nothing right in between right where you need to be. Still, if it's going to cost six or seven thousand dollars to fix that problem, there's six or seven thousand you could spend on other upgrades that would give you a much bigger return. So I'm not surprised that you're not seeing really great fuel economy out of it. Okay, well that that makes me feel a little bit better because the truck's been running great. Doesn't burn any oil. Doesn't use any coolant. You know, it just. Runs like a top, no problem. Uh, no money lights, no no issues. No no park regens, no excessive regens, no nothing. Uh, so the, the, you know my the, that that's my only issue is the slightly lower fuel economy. Um, now I do use uh, fuel gauges. I wasn't sure if you wanted to look at look at my numbers real quick. Uh. Yeah, I might be able to pull it up while they address the uh, the white smoke issue. What is the... Uh, we're coming up on a break. What's the truck name on fuel gauges? Truck name, CTBS1302. Okay. Let me get to a break. We'll come back. I'll let... Uh, Guys from Pittsburgh Power address the white smoke. I'll start looking up the fuel info, and we'll be right back. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. 
the guys from Pittsburgh Power here helping me out. And we are talking with Dan in Iowa. Uh, Dan, is this a uh, 2013 Cascadia? Yes, sir. It's, it's the uh, 112, which is the snub nose. Got it. Okay, so I've got your um, records up in front of me from fuel gauges, so I'm going through that. Um, you guys want to address the white smoke while I look at this? Oh, sure. also for, uh, so, uh, one, one quick thing for, for diagnostic purposes. Uh, I have been tracking DEF usage. Uh, it's the same name, except it just ends in DEF, so I'm not sure if that could be useful to John uh, or not as far as this white smoke issue. Okay. I see that truck in here as well. No, no, not right now. Okay. No. Okay. So, uh, I have a, have a philosophy of always looking in the place, last place somebody worked, or the last place you worked, or the last place I worked, even when I work on things and have a problem. Uh, the fact that you had this problem before and after the uh, doser change leads me to believe that the hole where the doser goes into the manifold is probably simply plugged those carbon up. And if that fuel doesn't make its way into the exhaust, it, it, it allows it to leap out of there. And it would uh, that's probably where you're getting your little wisps of smoke is some of that fuel that's being intended to dose the exhaust to light up, you know, to, uh, to burn off the, D, the DPF is, uh, is, is making its way out. Or there's, a, or there's a crack in your flex pipe. There's a flex pipe after that as well that sometimes will fail. But I bet if you watch the thing while it does or, or force it to do a parked region and go out and watch, you're going to find a little bit of fuel weeping around the uh, where the doser goes into the exhaust pipe. Yeah, the, the strange thing is uh, I had a forced regen done after the doser valve was replaced so we could monitor mm-hmm. the computer readings and physically inspect that area. No leak at all. And it didn't smoke. The entire oh, time. Yeah. It was actually good. I, yeah. You know, I, 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 I tried to out. think like you and Kevin when, when, when it came to repairing and diagnosing this and inspecting it afterwards. I'm like, think like John and Kevin. Let's, uh, let, let's put the detective hat on, on this. I would still, I'd still pull that. Like, it's really common that that hole uh, gets carboned up, especially if it's got a doser that's been dripping. I, you know, okay. just in case uh, when they changed it, they didn't get that cleaned out. And uh, it, it'll it'll carbon up solid uh, the hole where that uh, where the doser valve injects into the exhaust pipe. Gotcha. Do you think uh, do you think it'd be okay to hold out until I bring it in to you guys on the fourteenth? Yeah, it'll be fine. Yeah, we could do it when we get it here. We always take a look. Like at I said, there's no yeah, there's no performance issues. I'm not getting any park regens. Uh, soot levels reading constant low. So we're everything appears to be functioning normally. It's just. It shouldn't do that, so uh, definitely wanted to get that checked, but uh, might as well have you guys do it just to be on the safe side. Um, now, as far as the fuel economy issue, uh, John's already aware of this. Uh, we, we had a discussion yesterday, but, Kevin, uh, this truck's a little bit of an oddball. It ha- it's on kind of a stretched frame. From the back of the truck to the nose of the trailer, I'm sitting at over 73 inches of space between the two. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, yeah, we but, talked about that. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's nothing. This truck looks to me like it's about a full mile per gallon less than what I would expect it to be. 
even given that the gear ratio and the transmission aren't that great. Um, so that's one factor that that gap is going to, you know, kill us a couple tenths. Um, what do you have on this truck for tires, make and model, on the drive? Uh, it's going to be the um, steers and drives are all Michelin X1s uh, running super singles. So now they are the X1, not the XD, right? X1, yes. Okay. They're X1. So we've got good low rolling resistance, so that's not a problem. Um, tell me a little bit about your operation. What kind of trailer? Van? Uh, I run a, a Vanguard um, dry van, 53-foot air ride. Okay. And what part of the country are you spending most of your time? Mainly the Midwest and Upper Midwest. Yeah, no big issues there. And how fast are you driving? Uh, 59 to 60 miles an hour. I tend Holy to try to sit at uh, 1275 to 1280 RPM. I, I'm going to adjust that number then. I said I think it was a mile per gallon low. I think it's at least a mile and a half low. Um, based on that operation and the specs, you know, you should be doing darn close to eight at that speed, maybe even a little more, and you're doing six and a half. Um, nothing obvious jumps out. Like I said, 336 and a 10-speed, not a great combination. Um, that gap is affecting things. But other than that, I'm not seeing any reason why you shouldn't be seven and a half to eight. I Have you pulled any oil samples on this truck? Yeah. No, I have not. Uh, oh, and another added thing, I don't idle at all. <laughs> so well, yeah, that's not an issue either. <laughs> yeah, I I would pull an oil sample and maybe we'll and I would do it before you get in because that'd be good information for these guys when they see the truck. But other than that, John, I think this one you just got to start from scratch and, and just start looking at what might be going wrong. That, that was our that was our plan. We're going to get them in and do a, a complete EGR and after treatment maintenance on it. Make sure you haven't got a small boost leak somewhere. Uh, get a look at the ECM, make sure we're not, you know, get a look at at least at the DDEC report, make sure it's not running in some sort of slight D-rate. Uh, I think we're going to put a damper on it. And, yeah, so we've got them on the schedule for a couple of weeks from now, but we'll spend a little time on the dyno and do a little research with this one. Okay, good. Right, and one other thing uh, myself and John talked about was uh, taking and uh, having the frame shortened. Uh, that way we can bring that trailer in within uh, spec with... Um, the, the, the rear of the sleeper berth instead of running 70 plus inches. Yeah, I guess somebody spec this thing out for a great big bunk and never put one on it. Ah, so that's okay. probably the extra length. Either that or some sort of specialty operation. Uh, I'm, I'm still trying to investigate that because it's kind of a weird spec. It's really weird as far as that length behind the sleeper. Well, we have a number of those short nose Cascadias that come in here with the DD13s, their expediters with a box on them. So, yeah, it might have been set up as one of those. Yeah, that's <laughs> bizarre. But uh, I mean, all in all, I love the truck. The, you know, the, the uh, coming out of the uh, international porn star with the uh, Max Farce <laughs> engine in it, uh, this thing's a, a champ. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, speaking of that, uh, Dan, we're going to cut you loose. I'm going to stay on top of this. I want to see what you guys find out. And, um, you know, if you get an oil sample done, I'll take a look at that. 
the um, the Max Force engine. What did I just see the other day? I saw trucks that were advertised with an N13 engine. Is that the designation for the Max Force? An N13? No, that is a whole new engine. That is that's nothing. It's not kin at all to the Max Force. It's a brand new engine. It's uh, it's another MAN. If it comes from Europe, or I don't know if they actually build them here, but it's a it's a complete. Uh, complete new engine. Okay. It's supposed to be quite good, actually. Huh, interesting. Okay, so I, I saw some... It, used... it doesn't share... It does, it does not share a part with the Max Force. So it doesn't share a single part with the Max Force from what I've, been, what I've read. So, um, these were international trucks. So is that just a uh, an engine that's available for international, or...? Yeah, international only. That's uh, that's their that's their new engine. Okay, got it. So you get right. a new Pro Star, a new uh, PT Cruiser. It's, uh, you could get that engine <laughs> in. It. Okay, all right. Sounds like a plan. Um, I am looking at the clock. Looks like we're going to head into a break. We're going to get to the break. We're going to come right back. We're going to get to more of your calls and questions. So stick around. This is the Power Hour. I've got the guys from Pittsburgh Power here helping out. We'll get to more calls and questions right after this. want to let you know CMC registration is open. We are excited. CMC this year will be in September, September 17th, Council Bluffs, Iowa. Registration is open. If you have any questions, you can call our Tribe Care team. I'll give you a second to grab something to write with. You can also go to the website, letstruck.com. Look under the Events tab. You'll see the CMC there. You can sign up right online. Or if you have any questions or if you need some help with that, call our Tribe Care team at 855 800 Three eight three five. It's eight five five eight hundred three eight three five. We're going to get to more of your calls and questions right after this. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. I've got Bruce and Ethan and John with me. We're going to get right back to the phone calls. We are off to Kentucky. Chad, welcome to the program. Uh, 
and I didn't drive it like I didn't drive it fast like that all the time. But still, I mean, they're putting all the stuff on these newer trucks. They're calling them fuel economy, and I have no power. I can't pull a hill, and it does five miles a gallon. So I, 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 I'm confused. <laughs> Yeah, something's <laughs> something's clearly yeah, wrong, with that. wrong with that package. Yeah, yeah. D- no question. And the D thirteen pulling Mon Eagle at seventy miles an hour is a fluke. Right, that that's just not uh, not common for that engine. So I don't I don't know. Somebody might have swapped it out for something else, but uh, I don't know. Let's uh, let's keep rolling through the calls. We have a bunch of them. We're off to Iowa. Darren, welcome to the program. Hello, Kevin. How you doing? Good. What's on your mind today? Got a, got, got a question for you and Bruce. I guess Bruce first. Um, you've built quite plenty of high-horsepower cats. Uh, usually guys go high-horsepower. They use it. Fuel mics. They don't care about too much. But if you had, it's going to be an L. Kenworth. Have you had some guys build big horse cats and drive? I run 60-62. I'm big on fuel. Not real bigger when I bought an L, but I just try to get best of what I got. I like the L's. But anyway, is it possible to drive real easy, light footed, and get good fuel much with a big horsepower like that? Or if I get, get so far up, will it start going the other way? <laughs> well, Carl Kellner, when he runs from Buffalo, New York to Chicago with his Reaper, and he runs 58 miles an hour with a 2WS Cat and a 379 with all of our products plus ECM tune, plus the power box, so he has unlimited horsepower, unlimited speed. He does 8.3 miles per gallon with the 264 gears at 58. Okay, truck Buffalo to Chicago now. Keep in mind, that's fairly level. Well, so it is, it is very possible, isn't it? It is possible. Yeah, you can you can have the you know, horsepower you there. You think of a and if you're not using it all the fuel time, fuel injected engine is. Okay. Go ahead, Bruce. Well, I had six. Okay, oh, Bruce. A fuel injected engine will only put in the amount of fuel that you're telling it to. Sure. So you determine how much fuel you're going to use to get the job done. And I know we talk, you know, a lot of times about eight, ten, twelve pounds of boost. And some people think we're talking about using that on the hills, and that's not the way that's supposed to be. Uh, we want you to use on the level, get the turbo boost as low as you can. But if you need to use 30 or 35 pounds to go up the hill, then you use it. Um, you use it, but going down the other side and across the level, and you behave yourself, that's where you get the fuel mileage. Nothing gets fuel mileage going uphill, so. You bet. Like you said, one pound of boost on a cat like an equivalent to about 18 horsepower. Is that correct? Uh, at higher boost. On the lower boost, you're closer to 30. Like if you're at 8 or 10 pounds, you're at about 30 horsepower per pound. So if you're pulling a slight grade and using 12 or 14 pounds and you can back out of that and bring it down to 10, you've just saved yourself 100-plus horsepower. Okay. And I'm big on driving with the turbo boost change, of course. For the sake of losing two or three mile per hour or maybe five mile per hour on that particular grade. Now, 
don't say, well, I'm, I'm not going to use more than 10 pounds of boost going up a grade because you might not get up the grade. <laughs> so you have to kind of calculate. I still need to maintain my 58 to 65 or 70 mile per hour, whatever my speed's going to be. And I have to use the boost to stay there, but you don't want to use the power to buck wind and to pull long grades at high speed. You're better off to slow down sure. just a little bit. Okay. All right. But well, yes, if you're up above, if you're up above 25 pound of boost, you're at 18 horsepower per pound on the cap. 25 is kind of the break on that where it goes 18. Yeah. Yeah, 22, okay. 25 is kind of where it breaks over. Okay. Okay. Question for you, Kevin. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Bruce. Appreciate it. Uh, Kevin, this truck came with, I think, the X-Line Energy D in 2014. If I remember right, was there a top-of-the-line drive tire fuel mileage. Right. And I only got, and there's a stock 550 at the time, Cummins, and I only got just at 300,000, 304, if I remember right. And they were complaining, so they didn't do near what they should have. And my tire guy said, I should have got well over 350. Well, they discontinued that, I think. So the next time I went to the Bridgestone 710, and I deleted it in the meantime, and then it's a 650 horse. And I suppose using the cruise, I wasn't probably driving maybe good as I should have, but I was getting horsepower aware. But my big question is, these 710s are getting close with the big horsepower, even though I'm going to drive as easy as I can, my drive tire, because aren't the low resistance usually a softer compound within reach, kind of? No, no, not necessarily. In fact, it, it, it would be a harder compound. Because the softer you make a tire, the more okay. resistance you're going to get. So it, it tends to be a harder yeah. compound uh, to get lower rolling resistance. But, you know, one of the things we have to think about is, is the real math. The difference between getting 300,000 or 350,000 out of a set of tires is pretty minor. That's not a big cost difference. Picking up one-tenth of a mile per gallon because the rolling resistance is lower wipes out any differential there so i wouldn't 300,000 is still a lot of miles on a set of drive tires plenty to get your money's worth out of them so i would always go for the lower rolling resistance if you want to get away from that um, horsepower wear pattern you could always go to an all position tire rib tires won't wear like that it's only the lugs that do that with the high horsepower uh, that's all the time we've got. I've got to wrap this up. We'll see you next time. All right. Hang on, everybody. We are going to do a second hour. We have lots of questions, so we're going to get right to it. Here we go. Your taxes, your truck, and your road to success in the trucking industry. This is Trucking Business and Beyond, the show that puts the money where it belongs, back in your pocket. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. The website is Let'sTruck.com. The show is all about the business of trucking, and today is the Power Hour got Bruce and Ethan and John with me from Pittsburgh Power. We'll take your calls and answer your questions about everything 
maintenance, engines, performance, fuel mileage, modifications, upgrades, troubleshooting, emissions, electronics, new technology, you name it. We'll talk about it. All you have to do is pick up the phone and ask. And uh, I'm going to bring the guys in from Pittsburgh Power. Bruce, welcome back. Well, thank you, Kevin. Ethan and John, welcome, guys. Hi, Kevin. Good to be here. As always, good to be here, Kevin. And, uh, you know, I know you and I and uh, the three of you guys and myself, we could talk and talk and talk about this stuff. But I am telling you, the phone lines are just jammed today. What do you say we get to some calls? Let's do it. All right. Let's head off to Wisconsin. Mike, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hey, my question uh, is: Is it best to get a crate motor when I when I when it's time, or have you guys build me a motor? But while you formulate your thoughts, I want to tell you a little story. Um, I've been listening to Kevin now for a number of years, and and I learned some things. Uh, Bruce had started talking about a five hundred thousand mile maintenance, and my truck's just about there, so. I put my truck in, took a week off to uh, my home shop in Oregon. I know they're going to treat me good. I know their work's good. Prices are good. And I had them start at the front. They put, changed the balancer and or put a balancer on it and a damper. They replaced the uh, uh, rear main seal. There was original clutch, so we did that. And we just worked our way back through the drive line. And you know what? There was nothing... There was no indication that truck needed any of this, but they were they found parts that were worn and probably wouldn't have made it through the next year. So for what I spent, I think I saved myself a lot of money to be broken down someplace, maybe a tow bill, paying tourist prices at a shop I didn't know. So I want to thank you guys for that. Uh, that 500,000-mile service did reveal a few things, revealed the next weak link in the chain, and... Uh, I'm pleased as punch as I did it. Good. Thank you. Um, so I, I really recommend that to anybody. You're going to find worn parts, and we just replaced everything all the way back, sent the drive drive line out, replaced the uh, U-joints, all that. So, I mean, everything's spanking, brand spanking new. Um, so when it comes time to change this bull gear, Around that, what, 800,000 mile mark. I'm thinking, well, that, that's five grand. Do it. Um, do I want to just do, uh, have you guys build me a motor and, um, and, and then slap that in and, or do, do I want to use a crate motor? And well, wait a second. Want, where'd you get the $5,000 price? I think I got it from you guys. To put a bull gear in? Yeah. John, you yeah, Bruce, That's probably not far off. No, that's probably not that far off. Two days labor plus some gaskets and a bull gear? And you... it, we, we rarely get them done in two days. Rat out, rat in. Uh, yeah, it's always, yeah, they usually end up a little higher than that. I wouldn't be surprised okay. if our guys quoted them around five grand for that. Okay. And, I, and I'm thinking right. that, that 
that, that a motor out is going to save me time as opposed to tying up the truck for however long to, to do an end frame. Um, what do you, what do you, what do you think? I mean, I, I'm just thinking down the road again. Bruce has seen more than, than I have on these, but I would check the bull gear that you could actually measure that. You, you don't have to necessarily change it, you know, arbitrarily at eight hundred thousand. We've had plenty of guys go a million, one million, two on them, and then at that point, the engine does need a, a going over on top of that. So uh, you well, might want to be a little more objective about it than that. Um, you could okay. They, they Detroit's got a method for uh, uh, for for seeing if the bearing's okay on that. If you've maintained this engine well. You may not have to just change that arbitrarily at eight hundred thousand. Okay, that's what I was. That's what exactly what I was going to say. We've seen a lot of the bull gears run in excess of a million miles. So, how often do you change the oil? Um, well, I've got the OPS system on it, so I'll change the oil when they tell me to. Uh, okay. Yeah, well, I definitely check it at eight hundred thousand miles. Then. You know, I can tell you, I okay. I know the bull gear is All something right, you, you do want to keep an eye on and check once in a while. But I owned one of these days. I'm going to go back and count how many Series sixties I owned. It was a lot of them, and I never once replaced a bull gear. I mean, my typical life cycle was buy it new, hmm. spec it right, put an OPS on it and run it till it needed an in-frame and then get rid of it. And that was typically about 1.3 is when mine would start showing, you know, some oil consumption, and I'd get rid of them, and I never replaced a single bull gear. Hmm. Okay. Well, I've just heard so many guys talk about... Yeah, it, it, it definitely can be an issue on that engine, and it's something you want to watch. But I, I'm with both John and Bruce on this one. I would not replace it just at some random number uh, because most of them do go longer than that, really. Uh, let's go to Wisconsin. Rick, welcome to the program. All right. All right, I got a. 2016 T680, and I'm looking for information. I've heard from Bruce and John, I think, conflicting information where Bruce says you want to have a winter front, and John says with these newer trucks, it don't really matter. What kind of temperature should I be seeing? Because I'm getting down to when it's like around zero degrees Fahrenheit, my intake air temperature can drop as low as 20 or 30 degrees. What's the target there, Bruce, that you say we shouldn't? Getting our intake air temperature lowered because the temperature shock to the pistons, I think, is the reason you said not to have cold air temp. Where, where are you and what's your temperature in the winter time? Well, around the Midwest and uh, upper east side of the country, and you know, outside my, my temperature gets down to as low as 25, 30, but it is around zero, below zero. Are you seeing any white steam, white smoke coming out of your stack when you're in really cold climates? No, I got a weed burner. I never see exhaust except if I had those few times like that when I idle overnight. Otherwise, I just need my AC to keep warm with the heat of my gear. And what year is your truck? The 2016 Q680 with the Packard MX. 
Well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stick by my guns on this one and the heat of compression from the turbo. Your air inlet temperature is before the turbo. By the time you run that air, even if it's zero degrees, um, ZOF is only 70 degrees delta from if it were 70 degrees outside. So the physics are what makes the air hot. So whenever you pressurize and move that air, you've got the, the PV chart that'll tell you what the temperature goes to. And then the cooler, even if the cooler is at zero, it's only that's still only 70 degrees less than it would have been otherwise. You're, you're still going to put 120, 130 degree air into the intake no matter what. Uh, it's not good. John, not I disagree. Yeah, so are you looking at the pressurized the side? Intake air temperature has got to be pressurized because, uh, like right now, it's, it's normally around coolant temperature like it is right now. It's around coolant temperature. With, you know, 10 pounds of boost, the more boost, the higher that temperature gets on my intake air. I have an ambient air temp gauge on here, too. I'm using the scan gauge to get my information. Okay, so what's it say it is on the intake? Intake air? Right now, it's yep. 30 pounds of boost. It's about uh, 180. That's about right. You know, so it's, it's, uh, what, do you, what do you have at, uh, at 10 and 12 pound of boost? Intake air temp. Uh, and this current, yeah, my ambient temp around 70, it's it's down to about 130 at 12. And when and I'm idling, it'll be about 100. When I made that statement, that was several years ago, and that was from traveling across Wyoming when it's zero outside. And you see all the trucks coming out of the stacks, you saw the steam. And the engine takes the ambient temperature and multiplies it by three. So 30 degrees ambient temperature is 90 degrees to the engine. Got it. We've got to get to a break. The music's playing. We will be right back. We'll be getting to more of your calls and questions right after this. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. We'll be right back. back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Bruce and Ethan and John are here doing the heavy lifting. We're going to get right back to the phone calls. We're off to Virginia this time. Charlie, welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Kevin? Good. What's on your mind? Well, I've got a leak at my EGR cooler where it the three bolts, I got Detroit 60, 14 liter. So that, that's an 07. It's got a leak where the EGR cooler bolts to the 
manifold, exhaust manifold. Now, it's coming out when it gets on the EGR cooler, it's black. I figured the black is from the soot. But I'm just curious whether it would be raw diesel or if it might be that the inside of the coolers went bad and it's actually coolant that's coming out. Hmm. It's probably just an exhaust leak, I'd think. Yeah, it sounds most common there is it's the yeah. exhaust leak. Um, you would see almost like little drips of water running down the side if it was and be like crystallized if it was coolant. Um, so in that case, I'm going to go with it, go with it uh, being exhaust leak there because it's very common that clamp will leak. Okay, well, this is where the three bolts with the gasket bolts onto it. And it is liquid that comes out of it every now and then. It'll, it'll leave about a half a teacup on the ground at the truck idles for 12 hours of liquid. Yeah, that's condensation. When you when you cool the exhaust, especially if it's sitting there idling, you're creating a whole lot of condensation in the EGR flow. So if that uh, leak is on the cooled side of the EGR, that's going to be uh, condensation. Okay, now which is the cold side, where the exhaust comes in or where the exhaust comes out? Where exhaust goes out, right where it goes into the Delta P, uh, where it goes into the venturi for the Delta P sensor there. Okay, because this, this is where it's, I guess, coming in from the EGR valve. So that's on the hot side. That's on the hot uh, side, yes. Yeah. Are you sure it's not oil? What if it's an oil-actuated valve? Yeah, it, it, that valve, there's well, two styles. Is it oil-actuated and air-actuated? Air actuated. Air. Yeah. Uh, if it's the oil, it could be the oil dripping on the ground from the fitting leaking. And it mixes with carbon and gets really, really dirty looking. So... Yeah, it gets a shiny black color to it. Shiny black right. color, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah, real shiny like a, it's, it's like yeah. a high-gloss uh, black spray paint looks, is what it looks like. Looks like, yeah, looks like black rust-oleum, yeah. So oh, that's, yeah, uh, so that's probably, that's probably uh, it's probably time for an EGR valve. Your EGR valve is probably leaping some oil out around the shaft and leaking down around that flange, and it makes it look that way. But it mixes with the carbon from the exhaust, and then it leaks out, and it uh, makes a mess. And if it gets worse, you'll start burning a bunch of oil, too. You'll actually create the... Uh, it'll go through the EGR cooler and into the intake and uh, make a big mess. So, yeah, take, take a look at that. I'd pull the EGR valve off and see if you can't uh, find the oil traces there. Okay. Well, what I'm going to do is I get back in town. I'm going to get Freightliner to... Uh, look at it and see what they think, but I am going to get this truck out to Pittsburgh Power before the end of summer. I just got to have about six grand in my pocket when I come see you all. Because I like, I like the trinkets hanging off my motor. <laughs> and you got a bunch of, you, you all got a bunch of trinkets. You got a bunch of trinkets that could hang off this motor. Yep. Because I, I've got to replace the rear soon. They got almost one point Three, well, they got one and a quarter million on them, but I want to do the other stuff, and hopefully these rears will hold together till I get the other stuff done. And then I'll decide if I'm going to drop to a 264 from these 370s. But, That's a good change. Yeah, from three yeah. for sure. I mean, I'm going to see what we can do with adding the other stuff 
to the engine as far as the fuel economy. See if we can bring it up. We're gonna start with I'm gonna start with the engine first. There's a lot we can do with the twelve seven there. That won't be a problem at all. Yeah. That's no, fourteen. The fourteen the fourteen meter even uh, yeah. Even better. Yeah. There you go. Okay. But let's keep rolling. We are off to Pennsylvania this time. AJ, welcome to the program. Hey Kevin, how you doing? Hey power guys, how you guys doing? Good. What's up, Mike? Good, how are you? All right. Listen, um, I have a question about my um, 2013, I mean, 2012 780 Volvo. It has a, um, a D13 motor in it, a Volvo motor. My truck has to do a park regent every day. If it doesn't do a park regent, it does a D rate, and it actually goes down to five miles per hour limited. Can you tell me um, why my shop? has not been able to figure out the problem because it's been in out the shop for um, almost a year now. And every time I get it back out, maybe a week or two, sometimes a month, I have the same old problems. Yeah, those engines are not our forte, but uh, are you consuming oil or anything? Is there any, anything else going on with it? No. No, I'm running fine on the oil. I only have to add oil maybe once every other month. And that's like and half the, a gallon. Have you changed the DPF uh, filter recently? Well, the, the company does it. Actually, what it is, guys, is I'm a lease purchase guy, and um, the shop does all that work for us, you know. And okay. for some reason, they won't send the truck out to the Avalo dealer so it could be, you know, fixed properly. And I was wondering, is anything that I can do to, you know, to solve this problem because it's killing me in the pockets, you know? Oh, it's got to be. That's a lot of fuel. Yeah. How many miles did you say was on this? I have, um, exactly, I'm looking at the dashboard, 842,810. Well, with, with what's going on, I would want to pull the DPF filter off and have it sent to a shop and burned. There's a good possibility it's, it's out of its life there. Okay. Or the DOC. Yeah, the, the catalyst could all the catalyst isn't it. setting off. It's not getting a good regen because the catalyst is not. Uh, but in either way, yeah. I want to pull yeah. the filter out and take a, a visual inspection of it and the catalyst. Okay. Okay. Now say that again. I'm sorry. You said pull the DVF DP um, um, filter out. You said and clean it. Yep. They they yeah they can put it in a machine that burns, bakes them, um, and it bakes it all okay. out, and then they can do an inspection on it to see if it's still good or if it'll need replaced. Uh, but at the same okay. time, you can get the catalyst checked also, because if it's not uh, igniting the diesel fuel properly, it won't burn the particulate off in the filter. Right, you won't get a good, you won't get a good cleaning whenever it does a regen. So the diesel oxidation okay. catalyst is where it all starts. It does exactly what it says. It catalyzes with the diesel fuel and what literally sets it on fire. That, that's where it happens. And then that heat okay. from that from the DOC is what cleans the DPF. So something in the mm -hmm. sensors of the truck are telling you that once they're cleaning every day, a good one, yeah, is, yeah. which means it's probably not very, which means it's probably not doing a complete one each time it does it. Okay. Now I'm leaning for that um, DOC, personally. I think it needs a DOC. DOC? Now, one other thing yeah. I wanted to ask you guys, is, is it okay if I, I mean, I know when it calls for the part region, I automatically do that. 
But like I said, if I actually don't, it will go into D rate. You know, I actually experienced it a couple of times. Yeah, it senses the pressure is there around the DPF, and if it sees too much back pressure, it'll put it right into a D-rate so it doesn't make the problem worse and get you off the road. Yep. Okay, and one other thing. It's okay for me to do it every day until I actually get it fixed, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you could do it. I can't time. ignore it's it. Gonna be... Right. Okay, so, well, thank you. I'm going to Another question: Would I be able to pull this up to um, Pittsburgh Powers? Do you guys can do it sometime for me? We don't have, have to go to a construction shop. Yeah, you okay. find a find the I don't know of a I don't know of a Volvo specialist other than a dealership. If I did, I'd I'd send you to him. But uh, yeah, maybe okay. do a little research online see if you find a good Volvo shop. I, yeah, it'd be cool yeah, to well, find a good independent one. I I've got oh, a I've okay. got a pretty good Volvo. Well, technician. thanks, guys. He, I appreciate it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I've got a pretty good Volvo technician. It may be a little inconvenient because he's in uh, Australia. Other than that, I don't know of anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay. Hey, uh, what about that chemical we're going to be testing this afternoon and tomorrow, John? It's supposed to clean the DPF that's it, on the truck. That might help, yes. Yeah, we'll get to, we can get some news about that. Even if that cleans the DPF, Bruce, if his DOC isn't lighting it off like it should, which is what I think the case might be, it's not not going to cover it. You'd have to watch it on a laptop and you can see if the yeah. temperatures are burning correctly. Right. If the DPF is as hot as the DOC, it's easier out. Right. All right, there's the music. I've got to get to a break. We are going to come back and get to more of your calls and questions right after this. Stick around. This is the Power Hour. I'm Kevin Rutherford. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rutherford. This is the Power Hour. Bruce and Ethan and John are here with me. We're going to get right back to the phone calls. We are off to Tennessee this time. Dave, welcome to the program. Hey, um, so I got a Series 60 uh, glider. John uh, looked at it when I had uh, I'd blown off the uh, the turbo clamp uh, when it was backfiring and stuff, and I had to add uh, diesel clean to the, uh, what do you call it, to the fuel. Okay. And I did that for about two months, and I was going through uh, fuel filters like crazy, uh, like every 8,000 miles, and now that's completely gone. The fuel filter is not uh, getting that black stuff quite as often, 
and also my uh, pyrometer, uh, it was averaging on heart pulse about 1150. It's dropped like 150 degrees now, so I'm, my truck is running like a top now. Uh, so now I'm at a point where I think I'm going to keep this truck, and I'm, I'm so that worked. Uh, some things. Yeah, well, yeah. So now I'm only adding it like once every every three or four tanks. But what I noticed is uh, I think I I need to keep that uh, temperature down lower. So I'm ready to do the uh, the exhaust manifold and the um, the, the uh, high flow muffler. Um, but what I was wondering is since I'm going to keep the truck and I plan on doing that, I want to add a bypass fuel uh, filter. But what I'm what I wound up buying after looking at the OPS and uh, AMS oil. I went with AMS oil, but I have no way to put it on the truck. And uh, if the filters are only twenty-five bucks on that, I'm going to do oil changes every fifty or sixty thousand miles. Um, I'm not going to put synthetic on there. I'm not leaking any oil. I don't know if it makes sense to do synthetic or not. But I was wondering if I came with an AMS oil filter, would you be able to mount that on the frame for me? Sure, yeah, we'd, we'd, do we'd that. be glad to do that for you. Yeah, that'd be no problem. Okay. Uh, and as far as oil samples, um, would it make better sense to sample on the oil change from the pan as opposed to the uh, the valve, even on the OPS? If it's coming right off, do you know if the oil samples are any different from the pan versus from where you can sample on, on both systems? If if that you makes no difference. Now, if you do your no if you do your oil sample properly, and the best way to do it is at the end of a day. So you're driving all day, engines. Plenty warm, oil's all emulsified, everything's good. When you stop, you leave the truck running, take the sample. Um, you're really better off taking it out of the valve, out of either one of those filters. Um, it, it's a little more true. Sometimes taking it out of the, the pan, you know, you, you get some buildup at the bottom of the pan, it, depending on how you take it. So I really prefer taking it out of the filter when the filter has a valve like the OPS does. But the real key, if you've got the engine up to full temperature, um, you're going to get a good sample either way. Okay. Uh, and what was your question I had? Uh... Oh, I forget. Uh, I'm going to have to call back when I remember what that question is. I appreciate it. Okay. There you go. Thanks for the okay. call. We're off to Ohio this time. Steve, welcome uh -oh. to the program. Hey, good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, yeah, we're talking about the uh, natural gas trucks uh, earlier, and uh, it brought up something. I saw T. Boone Pickens a while back talking about taxes, and uh, T. Boone is 89 years old, and he said that uh, he made such a bad investment a couple of years ago that he'll never pay taxes again the rest of his life, and uh, and and his his heirs will probably be owed money too. And that would be Clean Energy Corporation that he started up and put all of those liquefied natural gas places at the pilots and flying jays. I'm sure Jimmy Haslam also regrets all the parking he lost because most of them are still blocked up. There are a few. I've seen two of uh, two trucks being fueled there. Um, the CNG site. They can get in and out just like you can with a diesel truck very quickly, but that, the guys have to put private uh, personal protective uh, equipment on to fuel with the LNG. It takes about 30 minutes a truck to do, and 
Nobody, nobody did it. In other words, T. Boone bought Betamax instead of VHS when he, uh, when he bought that, that idea of uh, clean energy. And uh, he had Jim Cramer on his show back, back in, in 12, 13, and 14 uh, pushing it so hard on CNBC, getting investors. I mean, they were really pushing it hard. And I kept wanting to get through to the show and tell them, you can't, your truck can't, can't fuel for 30 minutes. We, we just don't have that kind of time. I mean, it's the time factor. You're not going to get that happen. And then I noticed that like, all, the, all the trucks that do do it, do the CNG, they're in and out just as quick as I am uh, at their pumps. They had them up at Racine at the Petro up there, and all them, all them Wisconsin carriers have, have some uh, CNG trucks. And, but they, that, that notwithstanding, y'all already talked about the, the double, doubling of the, uh, the maintenance costs and all the, the headaches with the, with the pistons and everything else. Just the, the cost of what it's done with T. Boone's wallet and, and what Pilot Flying J did by having those monstrosities at the back of every one of their yards where they could have more parks uh, makes it yeah. a, a no-go anyhow. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, and if, I re- if I remember right when I was doing the research, the LNG took a long time to fuel. That was the downside to that technology. But I think... There was something about the CNG. Don't you lose fuel? Like, it, it evaporates or disappears or something? So if you've got a truck... It evaporates, yeah. It, yeah, so they went through the numbers on that. So it was like, okay, I'm either going to take a half hour to fuel, or I'm going to use this other technology where my fuel just disappears. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, like I say, I, I looked at it at the time, just, just looking at it. I'm sitting there looking sideways. Uh, like John said, if it weren't for the uh, for all of the uh, the tax credits, uh, this would have never happened, period, anyhow. But uh, but a lot of people, I mean, including Boone, lost a lot of money because, I mean, they, they put the biggest, prettiest uh, LNG places in, in there, and they're just not being used. I mean, most of the time at night, the drivers that run out of parks are moving the barriers and backing up into those <laughs> where those are at now just to have parking out here. So, I mean, it's, uh, like I say, I, I think if there is, is going to be a change going forward, I do believe uh, it'll be battery technology that will drive it most likely, and uh, you know, whether or not it's uh, Elon Musk or whoever. I think he may drive the battery technology, but I think he may run out of money and patience from all of his investors before he gets to put the truck on the road. <laughs> you know? Well, but, uh, Buffett's already in on it. You're, you're going to see uh, Warren yeah. Buffett's already about heavily into Flying J, and they're going to be charging stations at every Flying J uh, based on another company he's partial owner of as well. So, yeah, you're going to see those CNG uh, monstrosities replaced with uh, with charging stations and, and electric charging infrastructure here in the near future. Hey, and I, I think Warren's a little smarter than T Boone. T Boone's a tough <laughs> guy too, but he but he's no Warren Buffett in my book. Yeah, no, I I agree. John, you know what do you think about the the idea we have? You know, a lot of electric trucks being announced. Like I said, Volvo was the latest, but on, then we also have the Nikola, which is still an enigma to me. I just don't get it. Does it make sense to go hydrogen electric rather than electric? This is what I'm still wondering. And Nikola keeps surprising me. Did you see their latest announcement? I sure did, yeah. And, again, I still feel bad about calling it vaporware. I think he might be more for real than anybody. The the hydrogen thing, that's not a hydrogen fuel cell truck. That is a hydrogen fuel cell range extender. 
you follow that, the difference there? It's not just burning hydrogen to go. I think it's... Right, right. i got to believe it's still going to have some plug-in or some recharge deal you're going to have to do with it. And what the hydrogen fuel cell does, it just juices up the batteries when the thing's sitting still or whatever. Yeah, well... Um, you know, maybe you could limp along on it or something if you had a problem. We're and I don't necessarily disagree with that. But again, infrastructure, we've got competing infrastructures now. I, for some reason, I just don't see society warming up to the hydrogen thing in the same way they're going to with electricity. And I don't see the technologies on the hydrogen end as abundant as it is. It's, it's everywhere. Um, I still don't see the technologies going forward as much as I see with with, with storage capabilities of, of electricity, right, with, with the whole battery thing. It, and it needs both. So the hydrogen truck needs all the battery technologies plus the hydrogen, right? So where if you just got something that works off a of battery, so you need... And that same storage capability, if you look at what Musk has done in Australia with his uh, with the, the mega battery down there and then the, the solar charging uh, capabilities, you know, the ability to store energy is what's driving this. It's not, you know, you can say what you want about 30 power plants, power in your Tesla, or all, all that kind of BS. The fact of the matter is the, the storage technology that enables the Tesla to go up and down the road is also what's going to enable it to be charged solar. You know, even right. though there'll be battery packs, right? you know, and solar farms That's- out west and whatever it feed into it to feed into a grid to keep the stuff up so that's kind of what i'm uh, thinking i just it it seems almost like the hydrogen part is a a lot of extra cost extra complexity building out a whole infrastructure the vehicle becomes heavier and more expensive i just don't know that we're getting that much advantage from having the hydrogen there to produce some electricity i don't know um but it, like I say, Nikola, that Nikola truck, every, every time I look at it again, I'm more impressed with what they've been able to accomplish. Um, I'm going to get to a break. We're going to come back. We'll get to more stuff right after this. Stick around. I'm Kevin Rutherford. Welcome back. I'm Kevin Rothford. This is the Power Hour. Bruce and Ethan and John are here with me. So, John, just to continue on that thought, um, are there any auto manufacturers anywhere with any real plans on putting out hydrogen electric cars? You read about them dabbling a little bit. Uh, I know Mazda was was doing something because that's one one use for the old Wankel. It'll actually run really well on hydrogen. That's hydrogen fuel, not hydrogen electric. You're still going to, you're still, uh, nothing. I read, I read next to nothing about it, which, again, it's like the motor drive and the generator thing. It, it only runs for so long. You, you, it, you've got competing, how shall we put it, if not parallel technologies to make the hydrogen thing work. So the hydrogen yeah. thing doesn't work with all, without all the same technology that makes electric and battery work, right? And then you have to put hydrogen on top of it. Right. So it's a whole extra step. Right. So when... But, uh, the Nikola thing, with or without the hydrogen, you know, with or without the range extender, I still think that's a viable machine. That's a really great-looking truck. 
Uh, I personally know some people who worked on the engineering of it up there, Pat and Miller. So it's it's legit, you know, and they're, they're working on their little UTV as well. So it's definitely, uh, you know, it's head and shoulders above any other truck on the road right now in terms of suspension and things like that. So, well, and, and uh, you see if they pull it off. Yeah, there's uh, no you know, question. That, it's, uh, that range extender could be left out. It doesn't even have to be there. You know, that, that doesn't even have to that, be there, I don't think. Well, that's kind of what I'm wondering, because this company just continues to confuse me. They they are doing some things that are so impressive. <laughs> Their numbers were so ridiculous. I, you know, mock them every chance I get. Um, but but they have designed a really amazing vehicle. I just wonder. I, I, they just confuse me. Like I, when that truck first came out, it was not hydrogen electric. It was just electric. And then they made the announcement later that it was going to be hydrogen electric. And in in this last announcement where they were, um, you know, giving back all the refund money, which is kind of amazing, or the deposit money, which is amazing. But they also talked about. You know, deposit money. Yeah, they're returning all deposit. Yep. Yeah, that's incredible. You never hear of that in a in a venture like this. So, I mean, I that. But then they also <laughs> talked about all this money they're going to be spending to build out this hydrogen network. And I thought, I I, I just don't understand. I, you know, what they're taking on is a huge undertaking. Building a brand new Class Eight vehicle from the ground up. Anybody, even if you were going to build a new diesel truck, that would be a huge undertaking. They're not. They're building an electric truck with a carbon fiber body. And, I mean, you look at all this and then you think, why the hydrogen? I mean, why? That's a lot more complication. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that part of it. I really don't. Because they can do without it. it. It doesn't need to be there. I really right. don't believe it needs to be there at all. Right. Huh. All right. Well, let's get to some more phone calls before we've got to get out of here. Let's go to Tennessee. Daniel, welcome to the program. Well, going from Tesla, which is even even the man himself was a bit eccentric, to something we understand, <laughs> oil samples. All right. Uh, I'd like to get your opinion on my most recent one, if I could. Uh, I'm looking at it. We uh, Let's see. You've got, what, about 35,000 miles on this oil. Is that correct? Yeah, and it has been. I I used to do change, change your filter of the oil and then, and then wait for the sample to come back, but I don't do that now. I have since dropped the oil out of it just because any time it gets flagged, it kind of makes it go, whoo, and I change it. Yeah, I, I, that's, not, I agree. That, that's not necessarily the case. You say it got flagged. It's only flagged at a level two. And the lev- the only level two that here still is... kind of makes me Well, nervous. no, I know. I'm going to try to talk you out of that, and I'll tell you why. The level two that it got flagged at is for fuel dilution. You're at 3.5. But your viscosity is still at 12.6, which isn't horrible. It's not even anything I would worry about. We're not seeing any real increase in wear metals. A little bit of lead, nothing to be too concerned about. Um, You know, I don't say we really need to do anything with fuel dilution until we get above four. On a, a, 
you know, an OPS sample because they have a very sensitive scale for fuel dilution. And sometimes leaving the oil in lets us see the pattern. Whereas now we've got new oil, you're going to start all over again. Your fuel dilution is going to be low for a while. It might build up over time. Um, this would have been a case, had you called me prior, I would have said, don't change the oil. Okay. Well, one thing that is, is not flagged yet, but it still concerns me. If you look at the sodium and potassium, they're on the rise. Oh, no. No, they're not. Not the, Those numbers would have to be almost 10 times higher than what we, they are before we would be concerned. You went from on, on sodium. You went from oh, three okay. to three to seven. At at fifty, we probably wouldn't be too worried yet. Th- those are such. You, you, one of the things you have okay. to remember about an oil sample that that reading is parts per million. So if we take a million parts, last sample three of those million were sodium. This time seven is sodium. It, that that's okay. so minor. I I understand you saw okay. the numbers. You know more than double. That you have no coolant leak. Not not based on these numbers. So um, I I wouldn't worry about that at all. I I would you know see what happens on your next sample. It, it is possible you do have an injector issue coming back. When I look, uh, you know, back in seventeen, you did have very high fuel dilution. At 5.4, what solved that problem? Ran an overhead. Ah, interesting. Mm. Huh. Yeah, because you, you immediately went down from 5.4 to 3.1, then 2.7, then 2.9. We did have a spike up to 3.5 this last time, but... I, I would have let that ride. I think one more, you know, 15,000-mile uh, period may have given us an indication if that was going to continue to get worse or not. Okay. Uh, it, now, admittedly, my services are, I, I sample at 15,000, typically by 20,000 to get changed out. At the oil changes, I lubricate the truck, and... Just because of the way I am, anytime anything gets flagged for any reason, um, I kind of go, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, my truck's going to break. It's going to die. i got better get this out because i yeah. got a glider, and I want it to last forever in a day. No, and that's fine. I get it. Um, it, it. Level two almost never requires any, you know, immediate intervention. Level three, we start looking at a little closer. Level four, we always say get the oil out, fix the problem. I mean, four is critical. Three is, is, you know, a a clear warning. Two, though, especially when you're doing extended drains with a bypass filter, there are certain things in oil that will build up over time, even with a bypass. But if we know that there's a bypass and these are long extended drains, then those higher numbers are normal. Iron, for example. Um, Iron will continue to climb. All the wear metals will. They're, they're so fine that even at one micron, we're not getting them out of the oil. So what, there is no magic number for any of those wear metals. What we're looking for is, is the number corresponding with how many miles are on this oil? 
and your wear metal numbers are actually a little lower than what I would expect. So there is a little bit of fuel dilution in here, but it's not hurting anything. We're not seeing excessive wear metal. So um, it's possible we've got something coming back. Um, John, do you guys see often that an, an overhead being off will cause fuel dilution? No. I don't either. No, I don't see that at all. So that's a, yeah, yeah, that, that's a coincidence. It didn't say, Kevin, you know, you're, this whole oil analysis thing is kind of new to me. I, you know, we never really did it in motorsport. Um, didn't you say that fuel is really hard to pick up with the modern oils? Do you think maybe there's something in the, in the fuel that's being misconstrued as, or in the oil that's being misconstrued as fuel sometimes? It, it, it's possible. Especially if the viscosity numbers up. Right. And, if the viscosity is high and the oxidation is low and everything else looks okay, I, I would not, I wouldn't be frightened by that. That That's exactly what I'm saying. You know, 3.5, um, because the, of the change in the fuel blends and the oil blends, um, OPS, their lab has gone to a, a much more sensitive test. And 3.5 is just not a level that I get too worried yet. You know, and, and again, we look at, is there a possibility that the fuel is doing any damage? And it's not. I mean, we can see that. So I, I would have let this ride. In, in fact, for this caller, I, I would let the next one ride until we get to a level over four on that. And then we may go in and see why. Um, kind of interesting that the overhead brought it down. I've never really seen that either. There's the music. I've got to wrap this up and get out of here. We will see you next time. Thanks for joining me. Be safe. Be profitable. Be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rutherford. <laughs>